Well, it's just been over 24 hours now since we learned the news of uh, Jack Charlton's passing. And as you might imagine, it's all over the front of the Sunday papers today. The man who lifted the nation is the front page of the Sunday Indo. Eamon Dunphy's on page three, uh, describes him as a force of nature. And we're going to be talking to Eamon in a minute. And I think it's just, I think it's just hit everybody out of the blue yesterday. It came out of left field. Jack was one of those people you, 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 you thought was around forever and you didn't realise even how old he was. And I didn't realise how much he had deteriorated his health. And so yesterday morning was just, oh God, you know that thing, Jack, Jack, gone, Jack, gone, Jack, gone. It was a gay burn feeling. It was the same thing with gay burn, um, Jack Charlton. And immediately all the memories come flooding back. And so unusually for one man, all the memories are happy memories. When I think of Jack Charlton, all I think of is jumping up and down, screaming and being covered in beer, beer flying everywhere. I think of hugging and I think of just sweating and laughing and hugging and hoarse voices. And I think of 500,000 people on the streets singing and hanging out of windows and statues. Jack Charlton was a one-man electric picnic long before electric picnic ever came along, except this electric picnic went on for 10 years. And you remember when, where you were and who you were with for every big game because you were nearly always with your best friends because they were so important, these games. So you would always make sure, if you could, that you were with your best friends. And I was on with one of my best friends yesterday and we knew every pub, every place we were, we knew every game and we can picture ourselves there still 30 years later. And when the big games were on, the streets were empty. And I mean lockdown before ever there was a lockdown empty. I remember um, distinctly the front page of an Irish Times the day after the Italy game, O'Connell Street, 8pm it said. And not a soul, not a single soul on the street. That's what this um, phenomenon did um, with him at the helm. And other games, and then when, when these games ended, total mayhem, mad, innocent, gay, wild abandon on the streets. Think 28 days later... Cr- crossed with the zombies from I Am Legend. And I was telling the lads on Pumped Up Kicks yesterday, Anna and Dick, who did a great show. If you can listen back to it, I I really recommend it. They did a great show yesterday. They caught the tone perfectly, which was upbeat and happy and celebratory of Jack's life. And after the penalty shootout against Romania, I remember my mother drove me home from Dunleary from the Purdy Kitchen. And people were literally flinging themselves onto the bonnet of the car, just out of nowhere, just people piling onto a moving car. The windscreen cracked in the car, We ran a guy over. He didn't even feel it. He just jumped up in front of the car, roaring ole, 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 and screaming and happy, happy, happy. And all these memories were brought to us by a gruff, straight-talking, Geordie Englishman with a big heart. Um, He lifted the nation and he taught us to win. For years, we had great players. We all were proud of our great players. Giles, Brady, Lawrence and McGrath, the list goes on. But we never quite got over the line. We were always robbed time after time. Bad luck, Maybe not just quite enough belief, but this guy, Jack, he'd won a World Cup. He was from England and they expect to win every World Cup. They expect to win every World Cup. Foolishly, of course. To the manner born for them. Football's coming home. So when he said, go and compete, we knew we weren't just turning up anymore to make up the numbers. He gave us the confidence and he had conviction. And he was one of those people, when you have conviction, even when you're wrong, you're kind of right. So... He was wrong sometimes, but we just went with him. We bought in, we believed, and all the players bought in. And one of my other memories, of thousands of memories, is 1995, when Ireland played England in Lansdowne Road, and the neo-Nazis and the combat 18 hooligans started ripping up the benches and rioting. The two images I remember from that awful night, and you may do too, 
are a little boy and his father standing on the pitch and the horrified, crestfallen look on the beautiful little blonde boy's face as he sees, he doesn't understand how his beautiful game could be ruined like this by these monsters. And the other image was our manager, Jack Charlton, in the middle of the riot, stuck in physically, manhandling these British thugs. Fury and embarrassment written all over his face, shouting, Go home! Go home! It was some image. It, I'll never forget the image. An Englishman in Ireland telling other Englishman, Englishmen to go home. And now he's gone. So, Ray Houghton, six minutes. Ronnie Whelan, bicycle kick off the shin, top corner. Dasayev, the greatest goalkeeper in the world. Go way out of it. Vim Keeft, spinning ball. Ah, oh, Jesus! David O'Leary, a nation holds its breath. Packy Bonner against Timofte. Yep! Hello, is that the credit union? Uh, need some work done on the house. Yeah, again. No, it's funny dial town down here in Cork. Scalacci, Giant Stadium, New Jersey. They were the best of times. Jack, thanks for the memories. Now I'm delighted to be joined by a man who, as I said at the beginning, is inextricably linked to the story of uh, Jack Charlton. And that, of course, is Eamon Dunphy. And Eamon, you must be knackered from talking about uh, Jack already at this stage. But I'm wondering, uh, after 24 hours, how do you feel now as the 24 hours have passed? How does it sit with you now? Well, I think the monologue you did uh, a moment or two ago there was really fabulous. And it sort of touched um, a lot of the things... um, about Jack, um, I feel sad for Jack, of course, the passing of somebody uh, who, you know, gave us so much in this country and, of course, for Pat, his wife and their family. Um, but also, I think the memories that you evoked there in your monologue are really wonderful and uh, people were having such a great time. And as you say, you know, we were used to losing uh, we went to the quarterfinal of Italian 90, uh, which was incidentally the worst World Cup in history. They changed the rules of the game afterwards <laughs> yeah. to, so that you couldn't pass the ball pass back, back to the yeah. keeper. Uh, but no, it, it's um, I at some stage along the trip, the journey, it, it uh, I realised this wasn't really about football tactics. This was about a nation. Um, enjoying uh, the adventure of being in places we'd never been before. We'd never beaten England in a soccer match. We'd never qualified for, uh, and we did in in 1988 in Stuttgart, we'd never qualified for a major championship. Uh, And, of course, he qualified us for three. Um, So the whole adventure, um, and it was set against a backdrop of economic hardship. The 80s were very, very hard on people, a lot of unemployment, a lot of emigration, uh, and the economy was in rag order. So uh, I think now it was one of... There's been some lovely things written in the papers today. Declan Lynch has a really good piece in the Sunday Independent saying his first line is, uh, Jack Charlton was the most important man <laughs> in Irish history. <laughs> No question about it. And but that's ironic when, because when he is, he's, on, it's hyperbole, it's, it's deliberate there. hyperbole. Cause, cause he makes it, a very strong case. He does, uh, yeah. Mario. Yeah. But, so and, uh, I, I'm very much into it. I, oh, yeah. I, I have fond memories, yeah. although at the time it was hard, hard going at times. Yeah. But, but following on from what you're saying there, you kind of buy into the idea, which uh, half of us do, I suppose, we're split into two groups, that this whole Jack Charlton thing 
it was a turning point in a way in the folklore and f- self-confidence and maybe the zeitgeist and the, the way we perceived ourselves as people in Ireland. Like, if you remember, yeah, which you do, of course, if you remember like 86, how that was pretty much the height of the recession and Jack Charlton came in and yeah. uh, and then things started getting a bit better football-wise. I mean, we had been so unlucky up to that point for years. I mean, I remember, you know, Jan Kullemans in Belgium and all this sort of stuff. Yes. And we were robbed by referees left, right and centre. And as I said, Jack gave us this sort of sense of conviction. And it kind of, do you think, and, and you buy into this, you call it a metaphysical um, idea. The idea yeah. that, yeah, go on, to explain that. Well, it, it's metaphysical in that there's no... Um, logic behind it. There's no facts and figures from which to deduce. It just happens. Uh, and metaphysics is uh, really about uh, abnormal things uh, that are meant to be. And really, uh, we'd had much better teams. Um, we'd had Giles was manager uh, for seven years and very successful. We'd had Liam Brady in his pomp. Uh, and other great players like Mark Lawrenson, um, and we just kept failing. But there was something, I mean, this whole adventure began when a fellow called Gary Mackay mm-hmm. scored a goal for Scotland away to Bulgaria, which knocked Bulgaria out of the European Championships and gave us a, a slot in the European Championship. I mean, that in itself was a remarkable twist of fate. And I do believe in fate. Um, and there was something about the marriage between Jack and the Irish people that was beautiful uh, and wonderful, wonderful things happened. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think uh, the papers this weekend have reflected how much he meant um, to the people of this country. Mm. And I think... Uh, the people of this country meant an awful lot to Jack. He loved coming here, he loved the pint, he loved to fish, uh, and he was uh, he loved the informality of Irish people. Mm. So it, it was it, it's it raises happy memories in my mind. It I've does. obliterated all the stuff that I was involved in. Yeah, you were involved in, and when most people think of you, Eamon, they think of you at loggerheads with Jack. But actually, you write today in the paper, and I didn't know this one, um, I hadn't heard this one before, but in the early days of Jack Charlton's uh, tenure as manager, um, you, you had this, you had a dinner with him. Yeah, Jack and John were great friends, John Giles, and they'd played together for 10 years, and I had a row with Jack in his first press conference, but John fixed that up. He said, look, Eamon's all right, and we used to go out to the airport hotel and have a drink with him, um, and so everything was fine. Um, and then uh, I'd been critical of the players. Before Jack took over, they'd only won one of 11 games. So I'd been writing very tough stuff about Mick McCarthy, Frank Stapleton, players like that. And they were in the dining room the night after we draw. We did with Russia when Ronnie Whelan scored that amazing goal. And I was staying in the same hotel uh, but at that stage, I was friendly with Jack and he saw me standing in the bar on my own and he said, uh, are you on your own? I said, yeah. He said, well, come and have dinner with us. And he was with uh, Mick Byrne and Morris Setters and the players had a private dining room 
I said, no way, Jack. <laughs> if I go in there, the lads will walk out. <laughs> and I don't, you can't be hanging out with players when you're writing about them. He said, fuck them. He said, come in. And he dragged me and in we went. And as soon as we got in, the, in this room, there was a hush. And then who gets, Mick McCarthy and Frank Stavely get up and walk out. <laughs> and I, I was mortified. But Jack didn't care. He was kind of rough and ready, and informality was his way. And uh, was he, he was a good. He was a good man. Was he fun really, to be know? with on a night out like that? Yeah, and he liked a beer, but he wasn't a, a big drinker. Mm. He liked a beer. He he could tell funny stories. Uh, he didn't have any affectations, um, and he didn't like affectations. He, in that regard, he was probably an unusual Englishman. And a typical Geordie. Uh, it's a particular part of England. That's right. Up there. And they're, they're wonderful people. There's a lot of poverty there. Um, and they've had really hard times uh, since the Thatcher Revolution. Uh, but they are great people. Yeah. Lovely, warm, uh, down-to-earth people. And Jack was like that. Did he catch fags off you? He did, yeah. So he'd, he'd ask you for a fag, would he? He would, yeah. He was one of those cigarettes, do you mean? Yeah, yeah, never... Never would bought his own. Meet, would you meet him? He'd always catch a fag. Uh, yeah, and uh, he'd catch a drink and a second drink and a third drink as well. And that famous story, of course, if he ever had to pay anything, he'd pay by cheque, knowing it would never be yeah. cashed. That was a great. Yeah, well, that's a maybe apocryphal, but it, it, it would fit with the the profile. I've seen um, framed checks in restaurants, so I have seen actual right. checks. Uh, no, he, he was he was um, very very. Um, careful with money. He was, yeah. Lightweight, as you it. said, he liked his earners as well. Um, I, and he did, yeah. I, I never really knew that story either about Tala. This is a great story. So basically, this is when you had fallen out um, yep. with uh, Jack and you were persona non grata and you were persona non grata among many of the public as well. And yeah. you sneaked into one of his earners. Tell me about I that. Did. Well, yeah, it was in the submarine bar. <laughs> <laughs> which is out there it's closed now but that was one of his haunts where and was that to, is that is this a, it was out Walkenstown uh, yeah it was just on the way to, out to Walkenstown yeah. I'm not technically it might be Drimna yeah Walkenstown wherever yeah. Um, and he was doing he did a lot of gigs there and he'd get a couple of grand uh, at least and I wanted to I, I'd heard uh, that they were he sometimes he put the players down and that, that. so I went into RTE I got a wig what colour? What colour? Black. A black wig? Yes. Long um, or just a big wig like? No, a wig that looked like uh, it might be real hair. And I disguised myself. <laughs> and I went I went with Ken Doherty. I said, come on, we go to this. Did Ken put on a disguise? No, he didn't have to. <laughs> so Ken Doherty turned up with this weird looking character in a black wig yeah. and makeup. And we, yeah, and we stayed there for about two and a half, three hours. We watched the whole show. And I wrote a piece about it um, the following Sunday in the Sunday Independent, and it was quite a tough piece because he was uh, he, he he was disrespectful to some of the players in a certain kind of way, and I, I just decided we'd do this. In fact, uh, Guinness threatened to pull their ads from the Sunday into over the piece, <laughs> but it was I had to disguise myself, and I, nobody recognised me. If they had, I'd have been. Thrown out at least, lynched. Mm. Yeah, and did you ask? Yeah, a I mean, did you ask a question from the audience? Oh no, I didn't. No. no, no, we were sitting in the corner. Ken was breaking his heart, laughing. 
um, he was just enjoying the crack of it. And a friend of Ken's with his mate, there was three of us sitting there. We just watched the show. And he was like, he was a brilliant afternoon speaker. Mm. And I know, you know, you do stand up. He was brilliant, Mario. It's, it's incredible. Uh, he was so funny. He had such wonderful stories. His timing was perfect. And of course, the people in the submarine bar, they loved him. And people did love him, you know, taxi drivers wouldn't take me, all kinds of stuff was happening. Um, but uh, it was kind of, um, he brought so much happiness and joy and pride. Uh, and also uh, people who didn't really, there's that picture of John Healy, have you seen it? I have. Video? So he's I mean, basically that's John a Healy. remarkable in itself. It if is. You explain to bits, yeah. who John Healy is. Yeah, John Healy was a, an independent um, a journalist uh, for many years, and he was a mad GAA head. And he was. He, yeah. he, he was a big man, and he had a, a lovely pot belly on him and a bald head, and he was in his 60s. And uh, he was staring at this famous footage of him staring at the penalty shootout, and yes. he's bawling like a child. He's yes. crying like a drain. And, and this is when you look at the television and you realise, my God, this soccer is now truly Ireland's national identity. A little bit like the way the rugby team has yes. done recently. The yes. Irish soccer team became who we were. Yeah, and the thing about John Healy, Mario, that was really interesting was he um, was actually the Irish Times was a paper he wrote for okay. uh, most prominently. Um, but he, he was a big friend of Charlie Hawes, and he was a powerful uh, figure in Irish journalism, perhaps the most powerful and influential political writer. But he'd written a book um, about the West of Ireland and emigration, and it's, it was called Nobody, Sh Nobody Shouted Stop, yeah. about the depopulation of the West of Ireland in particular. So I think what moved him about that penalty shootout and Ireland's progression uh, through the World Cup was that so many of the players were the sons uh, or grandsons of emigrants. He knew the curse uh, that emigration has uh, on Irish life, particularly in rural Ireland. And I think he realised what this team meant. These were people like Tony Cass wasn't even qualified to play for it, <laughs> but there were Ray Houghton and John Aldridge and Mick McCarthy. These were all sons of emigrants and I think there was there is something deeply moving about that and deeply significant really uh, for people like Healy who weren't really into soccer but they were certainly into this particular um, adventure. Mm. And what an unusual man to be at the forefront of this renaissance and this this birth of, of Irish greatness, this, as you say, this unusual place in England. Uh, Yorkshire, they often say Yorkshire, this economy is the exact same size as Ireland. So the entire economy of Yorkshire is about the same size as Ireland. And of course, the, the, the England and that part is very divorced from the south of England. And it's not the same. Yes, it is. It's not the same England at all. Um, but Jack Charlton, this is an interesting point as well, Eamon, I think. And you know what I'm talking about when I mention it. Jack Charlton, who was a World Cup winner for England, applied for the English manager's job and yes. they did not reply to his, they didn't even reply to him. No. It was shocking and it hurt him. Uh, it wasn't something he ever uh, said very much about in public, if anything. Uh, but he was, uh, and yesterday was notable. Yesterday morning, the lead story on Sky Television was World Cup winner Jack Charlton uh, has p passed away. And uh, so he was a, a large figure in England because he was 
on television panels. He had television programs about hunting and fishing. Um, and he did, after um, they won the World Cup and he went into management, he did a great job at Middlesbrough. Um, and he applied for the England job and got no uh, response whatsoever. Uh, and that was very hurtful, very disrespectful to someone who had been, you know, an outstanding player and a member of their World Cup winning team. Yeah. So I think particularly when we went to Stuttgart in our first major championship, our first game in a major championship and beat England 1-0, I think that meant an awful lot to Jack. Oh boy, it did. I mean, there yeah. was a certain... And to us, of course. It did, but it also to him, there was a sense of, up yes. yours, up yours. Yes, yes. And, you Very know, much so. yeah. And, and just quickly, Eamon, as well, he was, a, he, was a, he was the black sheep. He was cast aside by the English football uh, aristocracy, if you like. And he, yes. and he came to Ireland. But even he wasn't favoured here to get the job. Bob Paisley was meant to get the job. Tell us the story of these smoke-filled FAI. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was. I can say I was there, Mario. It was a Friday night. In a wig or without wig? No, without wig. Although hanging around with some of them journalists at the time, I might have been better off in disguise. But uh, <laughs> the there was a coup had been arranged by Des Casey, who was the president of the FAI, and he had got contacted Bob Paisley who was the renowned, now retired, but then renowned um, manager of Liverpool, uh, and Paisley had agreed to take the job. So there was, and there were 19 votes in the room, and it was all fixed uh, that Paisley would get 10 votes. Uh, the other contenders were Jack, John Giles, and Liam Toohey, the late Liam Toohey. And um, they were all hugely respected football people, but really, it was Bob Paisley's job. And one of the people who uh, had uh, taken part in the coup reneged. So it went pear-shaped and they had to start again. <laughs> and funny enough, afterwards, two things happened. One is they had to ring Bob Paisley and tell him that he hadn't got the job. Yeah. which was, And Bob Paisley was a big figure in football. Yeah. Two was how are they going to contact Jack? because they didn't have a number for him. <laughs> so Jack was wandering around for 24 hours before he realised he'd been out hunting and fishing, that he was Ireland's new manager. It was very funny. It was a cock-up. Um, and uh, it was typically FAI. Oh, it was an FAI special. It was, yes, it was. It was an FAI special, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a cock-up. He was probably out fishing or, or, or something. He was, they, nobody had a number for him because they didn't think... They'd need to contact him. Yeah. Uh, it was. It, it was. was a, I know. Very, Matt, I very know, FEI. And I remember being. I remember in Ireland, we never really fancied the idea at the beginning of Jack Charlton until the results started going our way. But listen, here's a clip of Jack um, Eamon. Uh, from this is from Desert Island Discs um, in 1996 with Sue Lawley, and it's interesting the way you criticised and some other people criticised his methods. But here's Jack actually defending his methods in a little bit of detail um, on Sue Lawley and Desert Island Discs 1996. But it depended on people playing exactly as you said. You almost, as a manager, want to program players, don't you, to have an instinctive reaction no, to no. do what you unprogrammed believe they should players. do. No, no, in a way, it's unprogrammed players. See, I give each player one individual thing to do. John Aldridge knew that when Dennis Irwin got the ball at right back, that the ball would be knocked in behind the fullback. 
So John was programmed into going for that. Mm. Ray Houghton knew that the moment John got to the ball first, he had to be somebody in front of him. So, so there Raymond was a knew. set thing for them to do. It does make them into automatons to an well, extent, it, Yeah, it? but you see, only to a degree into the last third of the play of, of the park. Some of your critics in Ireland oh. said that this was a crude way of no, playing. No, that no, you no. were taking all that wonderful what artistic is, stuff out of the game where is, people believe for the ball. What is football about? It's about winning, isn't it? It's about winning. It's about scoring goals. How you score them and how you go about it is a matter of opinion. Now, they might have had a different opinion to me, but I saw what was necessary for us to get results and to move the team. It amazes me that teams like Milan and many of the European teams, now there's a terminology in European football called um, pressing. We were doing that in 1986. But now it's considered a good thing in the game of football to press. The Irish were pressing people in 86. We invented the game. <laughs> there you go, Eamon. He was a visionary. Well, hold on. He, he, you know what? He's absolutely right. And I've made this point several times over the weekend and indeed before. Uh, that was when Ireland didn't have the ball. Uh, they pressed the opposition deep in their half, just like Pep Guardiola in Manchester City, just like Liverpool, uh, just like the great Barcelona team. And the the, the problem was, and it, he, he was ahead of his time in seeing that. The problem was when we had the ball, Mario, <laughs> with Dennis Irwin knocking the ball in behind the defence, which is about a 60-yard uh, lob for John Aldridge. John once said his legs would be down to stumps yeah. uh, if he didn't stop playing for Ireland. <laughs> but it, 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 Jack had half of, of the equation right. Yeah. Um, but the part with the ball... Um, with players like Ronnie Whelan, Liam Brady, Kevin Sheedy, wonderful players, and David Leary, you couldn't even get in the squad. At the time, David was the best centre-half in Europe. Yeah. He wasn't even in our squad. Yeah. So, you know, Jack had his own way. Uh, he was very idiosyncratic, um, but the players loved him. Uh, they worked for him, uh, and... It worked for us. Uh, and, you know, the other side of him too looked after Paul McGrath. Paul was a great player. Um, he always had his demons. They had to fight. And Jack protected him um, and was, as Paul said yesterday, like a father figure to him. There was a kindness and a humanity about Jack as well. Uh, behind that gruff uh, exterior, he was, you know, a proper man and a sensitive uh, person, you know, who, who looked after his players. Eamon, I'm going to leave it on that because that's a lovely way to finish. I was going to ask you about his kindness and you already came in and said that. Eamon Dunphy, um, forever linked with the story of Jack Charlton. Um, thank you very much again for joining me this morning and stay safe and keep well, Eamon. Thank Always you. Always a pleasure, Mario. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Mario Sunday Roast on Today FM. Now, I'm like a child in a chocolate factory now because as a paid-up, uh, confessed Liverpool supporter since 1977, um, I am delighted to be joined by two of my heroes. On the line is Mark Lawrenson and Ray Houghton. Thanks for joining me, gentlemen. Ray, can I start with you? You must be blue in the face talking about Jack Charlton at this stage, but at the same time, you must your feelings must be tugged by this and you must feel very sad about this passing. Yeah, absolutely, Mario. It's a very emotional uh, period because I was there for Jack's first game and I was there to the last as well. So, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, well, the good times and the not so good at the end when we didn't quite qualify. But I've got to say um, the respect and the, the outpouring of love for Jack that I've heard 
in the last couple of days, both in Ireland and here in England as well, where, where I live. It's been incredible. You know, it just shows you uh, how much esteem he was held in by everyone in the sporting world, if you like, and, you know, particularly the football family, because uh, what he achieved as a player, you know, with Leeds United and obviously with England with the World Cup, and then going into management, both domestically and then internationally. Uh, he was just a just a super fella and a great manager. Is it fair to say that possibly there never would have been a Ray Houghton playing for an Ireland team had Jack Charlton not been the manager? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Don't forget, um, <laughs> when I was at Oxford, no one had come to see me play. There was no one from Scotland or, or Ireland, previous manager. I think Owen Hand was the manager prior to Jack. Uh, Owen had some very good players. Mark Lawrenson played under him. Mark will tell you all about that. And maybe just never got the rub of the green as far as qualification. But then Jack came in, got a bit of luck when Scotland went to Bulgaria and against the odds won that game. They got us qualified for 1988. And as we say, the rest is history. Two uh, World Cups, one European Championship and a couple of times became very close to qualifying as well. It was a great time to be part of the Irish national team for 10 years or so. You know, we, we pretty much thought every uh, tournament we were going in to try and qualify for, we were going to make it. Yeah. Mark, I really appreciate you joining me on Mario Sunday Roast. Um, I still vividly remember your goal against um, Scotland in Hampden Park in 87, and that was one of the first mm. times we can remember. Jesus, Ireland are not just going abroad to get sh- to get hockeyed or even get an old scrubby draw. We went away and we won, and everybody remembers the significance of that game, Mark, don't they? Well, also, and, and uh, I mean, obviously, Ray was playing, but the thing was, uh, when, when Jack named the team, I think the day before, he had Paul McGraw at right back and Ronnie Whelan at left. Bonkers. And we all thought, what, what the hell? And uh, I mean, I played in midfield that day and we thought, what, what on earth is this? But he, he, he'd done his homework and um, we'd had a training se- session. I don't know if it was Lily Shaw or something, maybe Ray knows, remembers better than me. And uh, he'd said to me that day, because I didn't play in the first game against Wales, um, because of, I think we uh, must have had a game with Liverpool or something, and oh, we just probably didn't turn up, which is also sometimes normal. Um, but uh, he said to me, so when we play Scotland, I want you to play to midfield, in midfield against Sunes. And I went, oh, thanks very much for that, the assassin. And he went, yeah, you'll be fine. Um, but obviously on the day, or on the night, he should say, um, we, we, you know, we managed to score, I managed to, to pinch a goal. But my overriding memory of the whole thing was that uh, late on in the game, only a couple of minutes to go, and we kind of, we defended fabulously. We played really, really well. In fact, probably Ray was our, our best player that night, in all honesty. I'm not just saying that because he's on the line, but he was. But uh, we broke away. And so I'm charging off from midfield, trying to get up the Billy Big Bollocks, thinking I'm going to score another goal. And anyway, it didn't happen. Two minutes to go. And, you know, we held on. And he came onto the pitch, Jack, and he came over to me. And I thought he's going to say, well done, Morrow. Yeah. Give me the biggest bollocking of my life. <laughs> he said to me, what on earth were you doing? That's what you're on about. He said, chasing to score a second goal. He said, my teams don't do that. And I went, fair <laughs> enough. He said, now get off and get in and get changed. <laughs> and everybody, all the press boys, and obviously in the press box, they're looking and thinking, oh, how good is that? Great management. He's gone and put his arm around him. If only they knew at the time. Mark, what was your kind of personal relationship with Jack, or if you had one? Because I'm kind of wondering, from the perspective of you two guys playing in a, you know, a stellar Liverpool side, and mm. of course Liverpool's philosophy is pass and move, pass and move, and find a man yeah. in a red shirt. And then you're asked to play this peculiar 
I mean, there is a science behind it, and we all know in retrospect that he did. There was more to, more to it than met the eye, but literally, it was long ball games. So, did you have a problem getting involved in that? And how did you feel uh, about him, Mark? I think I was sceptical at first because, and, and uh, as I said, I didn't play in that first game, and he said to all all the uh, defensive players, "You don't play in your own half. You know, you, you get the ball out of it, and you, and, and you get it up up front or down the uh, channels, etc." And I was, I was slightly sceptical but you know I just said on my first meeting with him when he said he's going to play in midfield so I thought well that doesn't apply to me not playing so so we're all right um, but he had obviously he had an eye for a player he had he was a bit like in many ways Bob Paisley insofar as that you know looking at people like Ray Tony Galvin those those kind of people he, he picked players to play in this system this 4-4-2 system which was why probably uh, Liam, who was one of the best players I've ever played with in my life, Liam Brady, didn't really fit into it. He had the argument with uh, with Dave O'Leary, but I think the thing with Jack was he, he was he was a canny bugger because he, he knew with Dave O'Leary he had Mick McCarthy, Paul McGraw, Kevin Moran. I could play centre back if he if he wanted me to. So he, he definitely picked his arguments. Do, do you know in in today's Sunday Times mm. in England, there's an eight page pullout on Jack Charlton. So whatever I say, I mean, I loved him to death, but you know, eight page pull out and it's fab. There's even a craft about Razor. Did you know Ray? <laughs> there's, there's a what, Mark? There's a quote about Ray. Oh, go Ray, on. Ray Halton. And it, it says, uh, it's just a, there's a few small quotes, typical Jack lines, and I think Ray come in at half time and said, I'm getting all the chances. And apparently Jack turns around and says, yes, and you're missing them all. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, brilliant. It was brilliant. And then the other thing for me is I didn't play that long. And I mean, I was clapping at the end and then I got my injury, my uh, ruptured Achilles. He came on a, a, a wet and windy kind of October morning up to Melbourne to the training ground at Liverpool. Half 10 kickoff. Liverpool A versus Everton A. It was like a comeback game for me. Mm. And he, he stood there in the rain and everything and he waited for me to, to finish and came over and had a chat. I said, I'm all in. I said, well, I said, I'm struggling a little bit, but I think I'm getting there, but it's taking a little bit of time. And he just said to me, get on with it. And when you come back, you'll be in the team. And that's, you know, things like that I thought was brilliant. I mean, come, I don't know, 230, 240 miles. I'm sure he could have been fishing in the Tay or wherever yeah. he used to go. So that was a big thing for me. That was that was a massive thing, and I think Razor would probably agree with me the fact that if he didn't need to talk, he didn't talk. He played with man, he played with man or four managers who sometimes you think they're just talking for the sake of it. Jack so wasn't like that, and I think also about the way we played was there were no grey areas. It was black or it was white, and um. Yes, he was a little bit fortunate insofar as with, with, with the granny rule and you know some of the better players, and we could get into, into the side. But even so, you've got to you've got to get them all together. And I think the other thing as well, it was just an absolutely fabulous team spirit uh, with Jack, which there had been before. You know, we've missed out on a few occasions due to all sorts of different things, even referee decisions. But that's right. This, this this was the best team we'd had for ages, definitely. Sure, Mark, I was there on the last day of uh, Owen Hans' uh, reign when we played uh, Denmark in Lansdowne Road. There was about yeah. 17,000 people in a 55,000, 60,000 capacity crowd. It was empty. Uh, I was a schoolboy and we were invited in free by uh, some of the stewards outside. 
and Ireland were beaten 4-1 and it was a good Irish side it was a really red hot Denmark side but there was really a yeah. feeling that Ireland was was at a low point I think even Paul McGrath might have been playing in midfield um, but it was a it was a it, there was a feeling it was a low point for Ireland and then this this yeah. new regime started Ray I was going to ask you Ray what was he like in the dressing room when you were let's say one nil down or nil all what was he like in the dressing room was he was he a man of words or would he just stand around and be still Jack and just Say only stay stuff on if he had to say it or shut up if he didn't have to say it. Yeah, no, he would he would say what he had to to get the right reaction from the players. You know, he, he knew the game tactically. He was very very astute. Right. So the, the one that Mark the what Mark said about the Scotland game. It was the reason why he changed the the fullbacks because Scotland had Davy Cooper who was playing for Rangers at the time, and David Cooper was playing extremely well for Rangers, and all the build up to the game was how David Cooper was going to take Ireland apart. So Jack put Paul McGrath up against David Cooper, and David Cooper, God rest him, had one of the worst 45 minutes you've ever seen a player have, because every time the ball went near him, Big Paul would just go, Rah! and just scream at him, and then run and tackle him, <laughs> and David Cooper was jumping out of the way. <laughs> and he, he played so badly, I think he got, he got replaced at half-time. That was the tactical awareness of Jack. He knew where the weakness of the opposition was. And when he spoke in games, and you know, before matches and the build-up to games, he'd turn around and say, look out for the number six for the opposition. He's the one. He's the one that's got the vision, the awareness to see the pass. Yeah. You've got to stop that. Get in front of him. So tactically, he was very, very good. I was... spoke very well to the players. But what Mark said there about, we didn't have the biggest pool of players, Mario, to pick from. We're not like England. We didn't have hundreds of players we could choose. We had a small group that Jack believed in, and we were so t- close together, tight and knit, gr- knit uh, group together, that we would get the games so when you'd be in the tunnel, you look down and you think we're going to be okay today because we had players that could play when they needed to, but we also had players who know we're going to fight for each other. And Jack wanted to instill that into us every time we came over to play for Ireland. Yes, it was a philosophy that either you bought into or you didn't buy into, and all of the players decided, we're going to buy into this, and added, added to the fact that we're good players intrinsically. Um, other teams may not have wished to buy into that philosophy, but we decided to buy into it. Um, Ray, do you know if... Eamon Dunphy suggested earlier on that that, that defeat of England in, um, in 88, it meant a lot to Jack, having been passed over by the English FA for the managerial position for which he didn't even get a response. Um, did you get a sense that it meant a lot to him afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and every game, he wanted to win every match that he went into. But, of course, you know, playing against the, the country where you won the World Cup and you'd been passed over in the way that he had, uh, he wanted to prove a point. You know, but he, didn't, he didn't make it about him. That was one of the great things. But he didn't make the game about him. It was about us. It was about the players. I believe in you. There wasn't many outside of Ireland going into that game against England that gave us a chance. You look at all the... Go back and watch the press cuttings from everywhere. England were one of the favourites to win the tournament. They had all the players. You know, Ireland were just there to make up the numbers. Jack didn't make us feel that way. He made us feel going into that game because of the players that we had. We were all winners. If you looked around from Packy Bonner and Goal, Mick McCarthy, they just won the double with Celtic. Ronnie Whelan and I and John Aldridge, we just won the... Uh, the league in, in England. So we had winners all around the pitch. We believed in each other, but that stemmed from Jack. He gave us that confidence and belief going into the game that we could beat England. And he was absolutely delighted afterwards that we'd done it. Mark, you were only about, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, you were only about 29 when you had to, I think, retire yeah. retire from the Irish team anyway. Uh, do you, I mean, I know it's probably an, a, a yes to this, but do you really miss out on on those two big tournaments that you would have played definitely played at? 
Yeah, you'd have loved to, obviously, but, you know, I think what happens is, and I knew that I was really struggling to, to come back and play. I mean, I played a few games for Liverpool, but it's like playing on one leg. So so I knew, but to be honest with you, you know, because um, Preston North End are, are, are my team because my dad played there and I made my debut and the day I made my debut for Preston, I, you could have just said, right, that's it, you, you're finished, you're done. And that's all I'd ever wanted to do, so... You know, the big the Liverpool thing was like Razor Telly was absolutely fabulous. It was just a completely different experience, and you know, extremely successful. And I mean, I finished on the Thursday, and the Friday morning I was manager of Oxford United, so I didn't really have time to grieve. If yeah. that's the question or the answer you're searching for, definitely. Yeah, um, guys, thanks a million for joining me, Ray. Any final, any final little tribute to Jack? Uh, all, all, I, all I can say is, you know, to just to say thank, if I could, to thank him for everything that he's done in my career. You know, to take me from a, a lad who was at Oxford, who was a journeyman profi like then, uh, to give me the international stage to show what I could do. And then from there, Mario got my big move to Liverpool. So, you know, I'll be forever grateful to Jack and his, his family and everyone who's associated with him for everything that he's done for my career. Ray Houghton, thanks very much. And Mark Lawrenson, thank you very much for joining me on Mario Sunday Roast. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Mario Sunday Roast on Today FM with Mario Rosenstock.